Well, good morning. It's a real honor to be able to speak to you this morning from the Word of God. Um, my hope today is to follow the advice of my friend John Sakenga, who, uh, in speaking of one of our previous pastors that filled the pulpit, said that he really appreciated that that person allowed the Bible to do the convicting rather than the pastor trying to. And so I will hope, uh, I hope this morning that God will, in fact, provide some conviction and also some edification as we look at our why. At the high school, we've, uh, we've started to look at as coaches and coaching staffs, what is our why as a coach? Why do we do what we do? And so we think through that, we try and define our why, and then after we define our why, we teach it to our kids, and once our kids have kind of gone through that a little bit, then we ask them, what's your why? Why are you here? Why are you playing this sport? Why are you at school? What is your why? And we believe that this creates vision in our programs. So as a football coach, uh, I can tell you this, that this idea of my why our why collectively as a football staff, that that why defines our purpose for why we're there. And I would ask you this morning to take a look at this question. What is your why? What is your why? Why are you here? See, we found that this question, when you have clarity of purpose, you achieve alignment of effort. Again, when you have clarity of purpose, you can achieve alignment of effort. And so this morning, that's my question that I'd like us to take a look at. What is your why? You know, the interesting thing about our why is that sometimes, um, most of the time, perhaps, our actions actually do a much better job of demonstrating what our why is than the things that we say. See, it's more than just the things that we speak about our why. You know, I say this to my daughter all the time. Those of you that have little kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? I tell her actions speak louder than words, right? See, our why guides everything that we do, and it can be pretty dang visible. There's not always conformity between that spoken why and that demonstrated why. This has been very convicting for me as I prepared uh, for this morning. Very convicting. And so, as we take a look at what the Bible says about your why, and I'll give you a hint, the Bible says that your why is to glorify God. That was your purpose. That was God's intent in creating and saving you, was for you to glorify God for eternity. My prayer this morning is that this message will provide conviction where it needs to, and that it'll provide edification where it needs to. See, we were created to glorify God. Isaiah 43, 7 says this, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, God told Isaiah, everyone whom I formed and made. See, that's, that was our purpose. That was our why in creation. But you know what happened, right? Adam and Eve were in the garden and the serpent, the deceiver of old, came into the garden and tried to convince Adam and Eve 
to take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had expressly said, do not do. And I think it's interesting, as he was trying to talk them into this, what he said to them. See, he told Adam and Eve, you will be like God. You will move into that position of honor and glory. You will become the why. Scottish preacher Alistair Begg says this. He said there was a joke that went around for a while. That in in the beginning, God created man in his image. And ever since, man's been trying to repay the favor. That really does describe a lot of what we see in the world today. And you're familiar with this passage from Romans 1. Let's read this here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, we have exchanged the glory of God for a multitude of other things, haven't we? Be it fame, be it fortune, uh, be it self, our business, sports, as we think of March Madness going on right now, we have exchanged our why that God gave us for a why of our own creation. See, sin is anything that we put in God's rightful place. God alone deserves and is worthy of our glorification and our praise. And sin is when we put anything else there. What John called in 1 John the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. And if you've traveled the Romans road as many times as I have, I'm sure you're real familiar with uh, with this next verse, or a couple of verses from Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen where? Short of the glory of God. I think nothing describes this position of mankind before Jesus Christ better than the story of the rich young ruler. Nothing better describes, nothing is a better example of the why than this story. And you remember this story, the rich young ruler went to Jesus and said, teacher, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus said to him, keep the commandments. Rich young ruler is excited. I do, what else? But see, Jesus knew his why. Jesus knew his heart. And he told the rich young ruler, sell your possessions, give it all to the poor, and follow me. The rich young ruler's response, I think probably should be terrifying to us. Because it probably defines us more than we care to admit. The rich young ruler It says in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The rich young ruler's why was wealth. That was his why. What's yours? What's your why? 
See, all of mankind, you, me, everybody, we worship things other than God. It is our nature. We worship our money and our possessions. We worship ourselves. We worship others. We worship things that do not deserve to be worshipped. Only God does. We have exchanged the glory of God for a multitude of other things. We have exchanged our why. But as you know, Milton wrote a second book, right? Paradise Lost and then Paradise Regained. Paradise Regained occurred for us when Jesus Christ went to his death on the cross and was resurrected after three days and through this death on the cross regained paradise for us that we should be called the sons of God. He exchanged our why back for those who believe. There are other passages. We won't read all of this next passage in Ephesians, but if you'll note the highlighted portion here, the bold part, bold part here. Uh, this is a great passage. If you get an opportunity to read it later, all of Ephesians 1. It's, it's really fascinating about our inheritance as believers. But listen to what Paul says here in chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. In the bold, he says this, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that also was to the praise of his glory. And again in Isaiah God speaking through the prophet, of, the prophet Isaiah. He says, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Peter, in the book of 1 Peter, speaking to new believers, he says to them, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Later in the book, in chapter 4, in telling these believers how now they should live, Peter says that they were saved and they should live this way in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus restored the right order of things. Christ won back our why from sin. We can now glorify God in the Lamb the way we were created and purposed to do. So that brings us to our text this morning, Revelation 4. If you haven't turned there and you have your Bibles with you, please do. Uh, I'll have it up on the screen as well, and you're welcome to follow along up there. I would agree with John Piper. John Piper, in his study of Isaiah 6, said this. He says, This has happened to many of us. A new understanding of the holy God, a taste for the majesty of God. May the Lord do it for you this morning. Or, if you already have this taste... May the Lord satisfy your soul with this vision 
more deeply than ever before. Again, the text we're going to read is Revelation 4. We're going to read the whole chapter. This is a large chunk of Scripture to read out loud. I'm sure that seminary would admonish me for biting off this biggest section, but I didn't go to seminary, so there you go. (laughs) Oh, well. Uh, I will, however, read this fast. And so, again, if you haven't, please turn there uh, or feel free to follow along on the screen. By the way, when I continue to look up there and point, I don't know if you know this, but there's a screen there, so I'm not just like doing weird things. But John says this, Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them, with six wings, are full of eyes, all around and within, And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so we have here John's vision of the throne room. Uh, To put this in context, To put this in context, Revelation 2 and 3 are the letters to the churches that Christ has just given to John. That's chapters 2 and 3. You'll remember there were two churches that that received commendation for, for how well they were doing. The others did not. But that's chapter 2 and 3. Then we have chapter 4 and 5, which are one vision. As you know, we're the ones who put the chapter numbers in there. Right, This is one vision, chapter 4 and 5. And then starting in chapter 6, you have the breaking of the seals that formed the seal judgments of the tribulation. Verse 1, Jesus tells John he's going to show him what is to take place. 
And I'm not going to get into the weeds on this right now, but a literal view of Scripture, I believe, teaches that the church will be raptured. After the church is raptured, a seven-year literal tribulation where God's judgment is poured out on the earth. And then following that tribulation, we will have the millennial kingdom where Jesus Christ himself will rule in this world. And so with that timeline and a literal view of Scripture here in chapter 4, the rapture has occurred. And so the events in this chapter fall between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation in chapter 6. And so we come to the setting, the throne room of God. You know, my little Caitlin is a sweet girl. Some of you are lucky, I think, to know her. Uh, Some of you do. Sweet girl. Sometimes she struggles to say exactly how she feels, right? She's six years old. Sometimes she'll tell me, Dad, you are my favorite dad I ever had. If you know her, you can see her actually saying that. And sometimes the sarcastic side of me wants to say, well, that's good because I'm the only dad you ever had, right? But she has a limited vocabulary that is not, not able to express her emotions the way she wants to. Don't we see that with John in chapter 4? Don't we see that John's vocabulary is incapable of describing the majesty of the throne room of God? For example, just consider this. Consider the lights and the sounds and the colors and how overwhelming they must be. God's appearance, his glory appears as jasper. In Revelation 21, that's actually identified as diamond. Uh, And it's Jasper or diamond and carnelian, or your translation may say um, sardium, sardius, which is a fiery red stone. And of course, as you continued to read, you saw that uh, there was a rainbow that went around the throne, a sign that had been stolen from God in recent years, but a sign that represents God's promise to men. And John says that that rainbow was like an emerald in appearance. And there were flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And then before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal. Can you imagine that? I can't. I can't even come close to imagining that. John saw it and I would suggest to you that he couldn't imagine that. We also see those in attendance And we see, first and foremost, that the triune God is in attendance in Revelation 4. God the Father sits upon the throne. God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is identified elsewhere as the seven spirits. And then finally, in chapter 5, which we'll just cover quickly this morning, in chapter 5, John sees that also in attendance is the Lamb that was slain. And there are four living creatures, and there's some debate about these. Uh, Ezekiel had a throne vision, and in chapter 1, he described that vision. In chapter 1, he describes cherubim 
that do very similar to what these living creatures do in how they worship God, but they have four wings. Isaiah, in chapter 6, in his throne vision, sees what he describes as seraphim with six wings. So I'm not sure which one we're talking about here. I think we can safely say they were angels. One commentator said that, uh, that they were just creatures. It seems to me too similar to the other two passages. Um, and so I would suggest that, in fact, they are angels. And, of course, we see the 24 elders. As the folks in the White Towers often do, right, there's a lot of debate over this as well. Some people believe these elders are angels. Others believe they're men. I would suggest they can't be angels. Never in Scripture are angels promised thrones. Never in Scripture are angels promised crowns. Never are angels called elders. Believers, though, all three of those things are true of. In fact, we know in chapter 5 that these elders sing the song of redemption. Angels can't be redeemed. Those that fell are fallen. Those that didn't are still where God purposed them to be. And so I think we can safely say that these are men. But then there's debate. Well, okay, right? Guys up in the tower, what men are they? Some believe that they're the 24 patriarchs of the Old Testament. Others say, no, there's 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament. These are the, those plus 12 disciples. Uh, I, don't, I can't give you an answer to that, I guess. Um, a third group says they're representatives of the raptured and glorified church. And I don't think we can be dogmatic on that. However, when we look again literally at the book of Revelation... I believe that they are, in fact, the raptured church. See, a literal and chronological view of this book would suggest that the nation of Israel has not even been redeemed yet. Their judgment comes after the beginning of chapter 6. Also, these men are dressed in white, which indicates throughout the book of Revelation, Christ's righteousness imparted to those who believe. Again, presence of thrones. Interestingly, in the book of Daniel, Daniel sees the throne room and he sees them setting up these 24 thrones. Which I think is interesting because the patriarchs would have been there, right? I mean, if they were in heaven at that point, ready to be in the throne room, we would have seen them there. And again, crowns are promised as a reward to those who believe. And so I think these, ultimately, these 24 elders represent the raptured, the raptured church. This is why this is so important. As representatives of the raptured church, they show what we who believe in the church are going to do for eternity. They are our representatives doing what we will do, giving us a sense of what our why is. So chapter 4 and 5, there are two acts of worship. One that we're going to really focus on today, chapter 4, and we'll just take a glimpse at the second one in chapter 5. Uh, and so as we look at this first act of worship, we see these four living creatures who say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, 
and is and is to come. The word holy literally means to be set apart. It is the creator set apart from the creation. And the trihagion, the holy, 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 as theologians call it, is to be completely set apart as God. The creator completely set apart from his creation. It is to proclaim God as God. It may also perhaps deal with the Trinity, the three persons of God, and therefore three holies. I can't speak to that, but it's possible. These guys, uh, these four living creatures, worship God as eternal. And the text tell us that they never cease to ascribe to God glory, honor, and thanks. They never cease. They do this for eternity. And whenever this occurs, whenever this occurs, the 24 elders fall down and worship God. You know, it's an interesting thing. That's a very common thing that men do when we come into the presence of God. We fall on our face. Uh, Ezekiel did it in Ezekiel 1. He fell on his face when he came before the throne of Almighty God. John did it at the beginning of Revelation. When he sees the glorified and risen Christ, he falls on his face before him. In fact, six more times in the book of Revelation, these elders will fall down in their worship of him. Utterly submissive to the God of creation. And it also says, the text also says that they will cast their crowns there's two words in the Greek uh, for crown. One is diadem. That is the, um, the kingly crown. The second type of crown is what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 9. Right? We, we run to win, win the race. That crown is a wreath. And it spoke of a time at the Olympics where the winners would be awarded this wreath for their victory to wear on their head. That word is Stephanos, and that's the one that we see here. This is not the kingly crown, but it is the victor's crown because, brothers and sisters, we are victorious in Christ, are we not? We see in both 1 Corinthians 9 and in 1 Peter 5 that these crowns are imperishable. They won't ever leave you. You are given these for eternity to worship our God. You know, when I first started doing this, I'll just be real honest with you. I, this is kind of the idea that I wanted to, um, to talk about this morning. The crowns and laying our crowns at the feet of God. And I really wanted these crowns to be rewards for, you know, serving God and to be rewards for tithing and you know, all those things that we're supposed to do in church, right? We have a tendency to do that, to want to read things into Scripture that aren't there, don't we? As I continued to study, there is no scriptural support for that. These crowns that we place at the feet of Almighty God are crowns that I believe belong to all believers. 
If you look at each of these crowns, the first is the crown of life. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. If you look at the second crown, the crown of righteousness, we know that Christ imparted his righteousness to us. The crown of glory, you know we we will live in glory for eternity and obviously we will rejoice in eternity. So I believe these crowns actually belong to believers and though they may include rewards, right? there may be some inclusion, the, the text doesn't support that. But they may, they may. We know that we will receive rewards given to us at the Bema seat, right? The judgment when the church is raptured. Regardless, whatever these crowns may in fact be, the importance of the act of worship cannot go unnoticed. These elders cast their crowns, their reward received for their perseverance and obedience in the faith, their service and their very salvation at the feet of Almighty God in the worship of Him. This is total recognition of and submission to God. Total and complete submission to the God who is the author of our salvation, our Creator, Sovereign and holy. And we find here that this is exactly the opposite of paradise lost, isn't it? Satan told Eve, you will be like God. Here are the 24 elders bowing in submission and throwing their very salvation at the feet of God Almighty. This is glorification of the only one who deserves it. What will we do with our reward in heaven, cast those at the foot of the throne of God in worship of Him. And so the 24 elders then sing the song of creation. They say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. They proclaim God's manifest glory in creation. They proclaim him as the sovereign creator and thus sovereign over it. And this next point is very important. They also proclaim God's worthiness to judge that creation. Understand, again, the context, right? In chapter 6, we see the beginning of the tribulation with the breaking of those judgment seals. So here in the song of creation, the elders are proclaiming God's worthiness to redeem and judge that creation. And so we come to act of worship too, right? Chapter five. I won't read this with you right now. Um, I, I know some of you have lunch plans and I could probably go on for too long with this. So I will summarize this quickly. In chapter five, In chapter 5, John sees God holding a scroll. And that scroll has seven seals. Really encourage you to do some research on that. Absolutely fascinating. Each of those seals are the seal judgments of the tribulation that begin in the very next chapter. Every time a seal is broken, a new judgment reigns on the earth. 
So that's this scroll, and this scroll is the title deed to the earth, which is Jesus Christ's inheritance. And it tells the story through the breaking of the seals of how Christ will regain that inheritance. And the text tells us that John, seeing that no one was worthy to break the seals, again, understand those seven seals, when they are broken, that ushers in the millennial kingdom where Jesus Christ will rule. And John sees that no one is worthy and he breaks down, breaks down in tears. No one can break the stain and the stench of sin on the earth and usher in that kingdom. And one of the elders comes to John and he says, hey, don't weep. The lion of Judah and the root of David has conquered. He is worthy. And John looks up and he sees the lamb that was slain. And the lamb takes the scroll from God and as soon as that happens, the worship begins anew. You know, I I really considered cutting chapter 5 out just for brevity's sake this morning, but I got to share this with you. This is so incredible. It says the, the chapter 5 says that the elders are carrying two things. In one hand, they have a harp, which is associated with prophecy throughout Scripture. But in the other hand, they have a gold bowl full of incense. And chapter 5 says that that incense, the, the contents of that bowl, are the prayers of the saints. Brothers and sisters, every time you have prayed for God's kingdom to come, it is contained in those bowls. That is incredible. Your prayers for God's kingdom to come, which in the text is about to happen, are laid at the feet of the one who died on the cross for us. They sang a new song, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. They said, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people from God, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And when they do this, Anyone know what myriads of myriads is? What number that is? That's because the Greek word literally means countless. That's how they, they phrase the word countless. Countless number of angels join in. And they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every creature on the earth Every creature in the sea, every creature in the sky. Can you imagine this song? Join in and praise God. They say, in heaven, on earth, and in the seas, to him on the throne and the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures then say amen, and the elders fall down and worship. How great will it be to glorify God like this for eternity. How incredible. See, our why, our why is to glorify God. That's why we were created. It's our purpose. And this vision becomes our vision statement. And so moving from the future back to the present, 
How do we do this? How do we glorify God today? The first thing I would suggest is we need to be more intentional. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We need to do this with intent. We need to have the focus of glorifying God in everything we do. King Solomon, author of Proverbs in the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisest man we read about in the Old Testament. King Solomon actually set out to try and figure out, what is my why? Like we're talking about this morning. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. He looks at his why, and he finds that it's all for naught. All the things that we do that we replace God with, all end up in misery and destruction. And at the end of that book, as he investigates his why, chapter 12, verse 13, he says that in the end, what is for man is to fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and be obedient. A third way that we glorify God is to confess our sin. 1 John says, that if we fail to confess sin, if we say that we haven't sinned, then we make God a liar, clearly not glorifying him. And yet when we confess our sin, we say to God that you are God and I am not. In John 15, the famous passage where Christ tells the disciples to abide in him, In John 15, he says this, he says, we must abide in him, abide in Jesus, and bear fruit in obedience, that this glorifies God. We need to be people of prayer. We glorify God through prayer. And I would suggest to you, prayer for God's kingdom to come. First Baptist, I sure hope that we have a bull all of our own from all of the prayers that we have offered up for God's kingdom to come. Of course, we must praise God. We see this throughout the Psalms, and we're going to do that again in just a moment with the worship team. Second Thessalonians tells us that we need to proclaim God's word, that when we do, He is honored. He is glorified. I would suggest to you that when we make disciples, that we glorify God. When we share the good news of the gospel, if nothing else, we're being obedient. I think when we give back to God through our tithes and our service, we recognize that God is the author, He's the giver. We recognize Him as God, and we just return that to Him. And finally, we need to be content. Brothers and sisters, you know that in Romans, you know in Romans that Paul says God works all things for the good of those who believe. And you know that in the book of James, trials and tribulations are allowed so that we can gain perseverance We honor and we glorify God when we are content 
even in the most dire surroundings and situations. Would you stand with me? Like the coach I am, I would suggest to you that this is a great time to practice worshiping God like we will for eternity. Pastor Chuck Smith says this. He says, here is a statement of fact that is important for us to accept. I was created for God's pleasure. That means I was not created for my own. Thus, I should not seek to please myself because I am not answering the purpose of my existence. I should seek to please God. But the interesting thing is, when I live to please God, I find great pleasure myself. Therein is happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment. When I live to please God. If you're here this morning and you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I encourage you to consider a right relationship with God, the author of our salvation, our Creator. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, there is nothing sweeter than being in a relationship with you. There is nothing better than doing what we were created to do, to worship you for eternity. Father, I pray that you would help us to glorify you in everything that we do, that we would be intentional people. Father, that we would honor you as God, creator, author of salvation. Father, hear our praise this morning. And God, may our lives be a sacrifice of praise in everything that we do. Help us to honor and glorify you. God, as we go from here today, we pray that we have offered up a sacrifice of praise to you that is acceptable. Thank you for all that you've done for us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.